Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. I'm here with our, our the royal we, uh, my <laughs> wonderful co-host Jen. Hello. She'll be telling our story today. I will. I'm really excited about that. I'm I'm excited. You're excited. Before you tell your story, I do have some science news. If we don't have anything in particular we need to talk about, I don't think right. so. Um. So yeah, we're just gonna go straight into science news today. Man, we're really on it. We are. Yeah. So I want to share a little something from the University of Hawaii News. Um, actually, this was shared by our friend and a fan of the pod, longtime listener, uh, Christine. <laughs> and this is actually about her husband. Mm. It's super cool. Um, it is entitled UH Innovators Entrepreneurs Awarded for Reimaging State's Economy. Brian Glazer, Christine's husband, and his co innovator kevin mukai they were like named co-innovator co-innovator they were named 2022's island innovators of the year for a tech startup that they have called hohanu which helps communities monitor and forecast water levels to better respond and adapt to flooding and climate change well hanu in hawaii is turtle turtle mm-hmm. yep. i don't know if hohanu is also turtle related but uh, let me read a little bit from an article that was written back in october of last year where they kind of highlighted hohanu and uh, it's a university of hawaii technology startup it provides environmental water level monitoring like i was saying they are one of four teams working with the southeast coastal and ocean observing regional association secora which is a member of the u.s integrated ocean observing system and part of and uh, part of the national Oceanic and Administ- Atmospheric Administration. Uh, Secora started this five-year project. They wanted to help coastal managers plan for community flooding and mm-hmm. issues with climate change. Hohanu partnered with them, and they installed water level sensors in 54 communities that are between federal tide stations. Okay. So areas that aren't monitored already. Mm-hmm. This actually started when Brian, uh, in 2014, he was working with a group trying to restore 800-year-old Hawaiian fish ponds. And he was really frustrated because there weren't any environmental monitoring tools that were out there that could help them with like water levels while they Mm -hmm. were working on this project. And he was like, let me just make one. Let me just go do that. (laughs) Let me just do it. So he teamed up with this uh, engineer, Stanley Leo, and they developed a groundbreaking low-cost water level sensor. uh, And it provides insight on tides, floods, and sea level rise. It's super cool because it's something that could be put into communities who can't afford all this extra. You know, it's just a simple sensor you put into the water. You can see what's going on day-to-day tides over long periods of time. That's really cool. Yeah. I like it. You know, when I think of something, I'm like, man, I wish my vacuum cleaner would do this or I mm-hmm. wish this thing would do this. And then I'm like, wish somebody would do that. Can someone get on And that? then I just completely, my train of thought goes to something. Right. Something else. Yeah. And he and was just like, let me just, let me just like, make this. He's like, this is really already. important. We have to get this done. Well, it's because he's... He's a smarty. He's a smart guy. So Brian says, democratizing access to ocean observing technologies has always been my driving motivation. And in order to deploy low cost electronics, you need to invest heavily into the knowledge and software infrastructure to support those devices. Mm. So that is what Hohanu does. And we just want to give a big congratulations to Hohanu and Brian and Kevin for getting this uh, honor 
for having this honor. It's really great. Yeah, congratulations, guys. Yeah. That's awesome. Brian is an associate professor at UH Manoa School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, which we talked about in our squid episode, which was really more of an episode about Tammy Oldham's survival across the Pacific Ocean. And I talked about SOAS there because they were using that boat research vessel. That's part of the story. To look at the red flying squid. Yes. Because so, I was like, I have to have an animal in here somewhere. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> have to do it. Keep doing cool things. I mean, I think we'll just have to talk to Christine and Brian to start getting some of our ideas from the emergency preparedness kit made into real life because apparently he just is able to do that. Just able to like do those things. Or like, hear us out. Listen. (laughs) Here's the list. Yeah. I was planning to do another primate episode. Yeah. Because it seems like, you know, get them all done. Yeah, the trimates that we talked about, Let's Jane just... Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Beirut Galdicus. Mm-hmm. I was moving on to talk about another primate that's really in need of help. Yes. But it was uh, it was just so depressing and sad. I couldn't do it. You didn't want to get all your tears out for 2022, like oh. <laughs> before April? And then your last episode was like a real pulling at your heartstrings. It really was. Yeah. We had some feedback on that. A lot of people were like very... They were touched. They were touched. Yes. A couple people sent this to us, but there's like a clip of... Who's that famous Australian actress that's not Nicole Kidman, but like really Naomi pretty? Naomi Watts? Naomi Watts is going to mm-hmm. be in a movie about that incident. Really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. I don't. I didn't watch the full clip, but yeah, it seems like it's coming out, either coming out soon or maybe it came out before. I don't know. I have to go look it up. But yeah, moving on. So I, I researched it all week. I, I'm not really sure how I got on the topic that I did get on somehow, mm-hmm. but I completely went in a different direction. Oh. So something completely not even related to primates at all. We're going to talk about... The Channel Islands off the coast of California. I know absolutely nothing. Before I went to the Peace Corps, I thought it would be helpful when I knew I was going to be going to an island Mm -hmm. that I get dive certified. At the time, I was living in the Los Angeles area. So I went to get dive certified at, of course, Hollywood Divers. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, they were great, though. And we actually went out and did our certification, like the, the real dive dive at... Catalina Island. Where there's like a bunch of goats or something. Yeah. Bison or... Bi- yeah, right, right, right. Bison? Yeah, I think we talked about yeah. this before. We, we talked about it before. We're like, what is it? Something out there <laughs> something. that was left some out from some movies. Hooved animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ungulates. But we went there and yeah, sea lions and right. kelp and all that stuff. And it was cold. And then when I actually did dive in Micronesia, I was like, <laughs> I went in shorts and a t-shirt. I literally dove in shorts and a t-shirt every yeah. time. So we'd always jump on the boats with tourists Mm-hmm. because they would let us go for like free yeah i think i just had to pay the like 15 bucks to rent the the gear the gear mm-hmm. the tourists were like putting on all this gear and wetsuits and things and i was just sitting there in my shorts and t-shirt and they were like are you gonna change and i was like no i'm good well i did have that full body suit i don't know if you remember from our early days in peace corps because <laughs> i was <laughs> i think i so blocked it. worried about uh skin cancer yes which is ironic but it had little loops for your fingers right and it had stirrups for your feet i think i do remember and you'd wear it under shorts and t-shirts you're right i did wear shorts over the top because i remember some sort of magic underwear under your outfit <laughs> Sorry, I just threw out some shade on the Mormons. That was, that was so, mean. That was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. they were black. It was, it was a long sleeve 
all the way to the legs, stirrup pants. They probably have some pictures. Guaranteed there are pictures. Well, moving on. Uh, just off the coast of Southern California lies an archipelago. So there's eight islands in the Channel Islands spanning 160 miles from the southernmost island of San Clemente to the northernmost San Miguel. They're not very far out. I think when we took the boat to Santa Catalina, it was mm-hmm. maybe an hour, 45 minutes. I don't know. It's not far. Most of them are uninhabited. Only Santa Catalina has a population. Mm-hmm. And then San Clemente and another one called San Nicolas are actually um, have a Navy presence. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'll go into that in a, in a little bit. But they like to call them the Galapagos of North America because there's 145 endemic species that live throughout Dang. those islands. Endemic to California or endemic to those islands? Endemic to those islands. Basically, the islands form into two groups. There's the Santa Barbara group to the north. They're separated by mainland California and the Santa Barbara Channel. Mm-hmm. And so that includes San Miguel, Santa Rosa Island, Santa Cruz Island, and another island called, I think I'm saying this right, Anacapa. And then there's a group of three little small islets around that. The southern ones are Santa Catalina group, and they're separated by the California mainland and the San Pedro Canal, the outer Santa Barbara Channel, and includes islands that are Santa Barbara, San Nicolas, Santa Catalina, and San Clemente. I hope that makes sense. There will be a map attached. Perfect. Okay. The islands range from pretty good size. Santa Cruz is 98 square miles, and that's the largest one. And the smallest is the Anacapa and the little islets around it. And they're about one square mile. So the Santa Barbara Group and Santa Barbara Island comprise the Channel Islands National Park. The terrain is interesting. Most of them are, they're just rugged and kind of mountainous. Mm -hmm. They're sea caves. Their geologic structure looks like the coastal ranges if you're like driving along California. Ocean basins and troughs between the islands are go as deep as 6,000 feet, which is wild, or 1,800 meters. The islands are noted for distinct plant animal life, and a lot of them are native. Some of them are like subspecies of a species that's just a little different throughout the islands, so they probably count those individually. Only two of the islands are kind of forested. I'm using air quotes. Catalina and I believe San Clemente. I could be wrong. I thought I wrote it down, but for sure Santa Catalina. And the other ones are more like shrubby, grasslandy, and not not a lot happening on those islands. The animals can range across the islands, of course. And like I said, they're subspecies. But when you look at Channel Islands, um, and when I went to the National Park website, the four native mammals that are endemic is the island fox, the island deer mouse, the harvest mouse, and the spotted skunk. And other things, either they come and go or they're non-native. So the fox and the deer mouse, definitely they have different subspecies on all the islands. And they're on six of the islands. Two of the islands are actually too small to have enough water to sustain these mammals, but the Mm -hmm. rest of the six do. There are also some reptiles and amphibian species. Um, There's four lizards, one salamander, a frog, and two non-venomous snakes. If you want all these species, you can look them up on the park National Park website, which I'll give you at the end. It's going to vary throughout the different islands, and none of the islands supports every single one of those species. So it's just, I'm kind of speaking generally throughout the Channel Islands. For example, the island night lizard is a threatened species found nowhere else in the world, Mm. and it only occurs on three of those islands. It's called the night lizard? Yeah, it's called the island night lizard. 
That's creepy. It makes me think of all of the like Pacific Island stories about monitor lizards that turn into dudes <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> to me, it's like a cool band name. Okay, maybe. Yeah, I can see that too. It's also, of course, easier for birds to come and go. The bird species is very diverse. Um, and it's often like a lot of them on the island. So mm-hmm. I'm really not going to go into that list. <laughs> but a lot of, you know, migrants um, and rare species have been noted on the islands. And especially during like spring and summer migrations. Also, the scrub jay has evolved into these unique endemic island species along with the fox. And the largest land bird that's native to the islands is the bald eagle. Oh. And it's a species that has recently been reintroduced. There's also some bats that are frequently seen, mostly on Santa Cruz and Santa Rosa Islands. There's several different kinds of bats. Some are pollinators and some are insectivores. There's 11 species that they've counted or seen. Um, but the most important is the rare Townsend's big-eared bats. Oh, that sounds familiar. They're pretty rare, and so... They're they're keeping track of that colony over there. Fun fact, there was a Channel Islands a mammoth, the pygmy mammoth, Mammothus exilis. Like a tiny mammoth? A tiny. It was like a little taller than me. Oh my God, like a pygmy elephant. It was a pygmy elephant. It was extinct species of dwarf elephant. So they found remains and they've known of them on those northern Channel Islands since 1856. But they're first reported in scientific literature in 1873. Mm. And they think they descended from the Colombian mammoth, which was in mainland North America, in that it became extinct during the quaternary extinction, which was a long ass time ago. I feel like they keep changing the names. There's another one on here. It's like, these people are this old. They're like 5,000 BP. And I was like, what's BP? Right. And I looked it up and it was before present. But like, what does that mean in years? Like, I get it. But at the same time. So that was the event where a lot of megafauna species became extinct because of changing climate and all that stuff. And they couldn't adapt. So that time. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Oh, And it's also a case of the island uh, dwarfism, which we see a lot. And if you, I'll talk about it a little more later, but the little fox is also like another form of being small because you're on an island. It's like a tiny fox? They're a tiny fox. Oh my God. I'll talk about them a little bit. So yeah, they say that these pygmy mammoths or pygmy elephants, they were on average about five and a half feet, like 5.6 feet up to 6.6 feet compared to the 14 foot ancestor. In 1994, the Park Service had called some scientists. They're like, hey scientists, can you come check and see if there's like, can you do some like digging around and see what's out there? They have like one of those clear phones where you can see all the mechanisms on the inside. That's their <laughs> scientist phone. They just pick it up and they're like, hello, scientists. Or there's just a button that just says scientist. Right. But I think they mean archaeologists because <laughs> there's a lot of kind of, they're like not calling a molecular biologist. They called the scientists because they found some more pygmy, ele- or pygmy mammoth bones. Yeah. And they recovered like 90% of a mature male which is kind of cool. And they say he was about 50 years old when he died. It's a nice long life. So they took the bones. These are the ones. They had some like in a picture, maybe from when they dug it. Mm. But I think this is the picture I added that you'll see is that they took them to the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. And it's like almost all of it there. It's only missing like a few little pieces. So you can pretty much see the whole skeleton of the pygmy. And, And from searching from there, they found like 160 other locations of mammoth remains. So there were quite a few. It'd be so cute to go to an island and there's little tiny elephants. The Channel Islands also have a lot of 
seabirds, and they're a really important area for seabirds. The largest colonies of seabirds in Southern California, UC Silence. Um, it's the only breeding colony for the California brown pelicans in California. I guess, I don't know if they go and use other places up and down the coast. And the brown pelicans are also protected, and there's also um, protected Scripps murelets. The largest colonies in Southern California of the Cassin's Ocklet, the Western Gulls, Rhinoceros Ocklets, Tufted Puffins, I don't know my birds, Ashy Storm Petrels, Double Crested Cormorant, Pigeon Gulamots. You're doing amazing. Black Storm Petrels. And I think there's also some plovers in there. There's also nine raptor species that live in the parks, across the parks, like hawks and owls. And you can look up all those species. Several of these bird species have completely disappeared during the 20th century. There was an endemic subspecies of a song sparrow on Santa Barbara, and it was driven to extinction because of habitat destruction and introduced rabbits and direct predation by feral cats. Quiet, Jen. There was also a fire in 1959 that destroyed a lot of its habitat. Both bald eagles and peregrine falcons also formerly bred on the islands, but they disappeared because of harassment. (laughs) You're Um. ugly. (laughs) Shooting, egg stealing, and reproductive failure caused by pesticides such as DDT. But these species have made a comeback. And I'm going to talk about that at the very end. Uh, Peregrines were reintroduced back to the islands in the 80s and bald eagles were reintroduced starting in 2002. There's a bunch of marine mammals. Mm -hmm. There are many species of pinnipeds, seals and sea lions, and cetaceans. Do you know what those are? I did those Whales and dolphins. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They breed on the islands or feed in the waters around. You'll often see huge pods of common dolphins. Oh, God. Smiling maniacally Maniacally. at you. (laughs) And smaller groups of the Rissos dolphins. Dolphins, occasionally some rare Pacific white sided and bottlenose dolphins. The dolphins feed on anchovies and other small fish, and the schools follow that around. Mm-hmm. There's also orcas. Oh, in there, yes. keeping it classy with the orcas and just giving everybody hell. During the winter months, the Pacific gray whales will migrate between their summer feeding grounds in Alaska and their breeding areas in Baja, Mexico. So they pass through those channels. So you'll see them. On their way to Baja? They're like, we're going to Baja, man. <laughs> They've already like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're anthropomorphizing just... <laughs> all the animals. <laughs> they're like in their, ho- they're in their aloha wear. <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, man, we just came down from Alaska. It was super cold. We're going to Baja. It's going to be great. <laughs> they're wearing jams. <laughs> They have like the sunglasses on their head because they don't need it yet because they're not in Baja yet. Not yet. Their feathered hair is like pushed back by the sunglasses. (laughs) Do they have mullets? I just want to know. I mean, I know how much I'm like, don't name the animals, but I do enjoy a good humorous anthropomorphizing. Brian at Zoo Animal Draws. Please do this. Basically, just like all the species on a poster. We need that, but for the cetaceans, but like what they really are like. Oh, yeah. So the gray whales are usually seen passing through between December and March. And there's other whale species like the humpbacks, the blue whales, and fin whales are a little less common because people live, like love to murder them when mm. the whaling days. Occasionally, they're seen during the summer. California sea lions are also often seen in the area. They like to lay around on buoys. <laughs> <laughs> Like they do in offshore rocks and usually encountered by, you know, snorkelers. When I went diving, Mm -hmm. all the sea lions, they're just like dogs of the ocean. 
people, I guess, don't usually see it, but there are still big colonies of sea lions and seals that go to the islands to breed. At Point Bennett on the west side or west end of San Miguel Island, there's like hundreds of thousands of northern elephant seals and California sea lions and uh, northern fur seals and harbor seals. And they breed at different times throughout the year. So guess what else is going to be around? Sharks. Totally. Great whites, bull sharks, tigers. This is a really nice, diverse oh, ecosystem yeah. that you're talking about. I'm That's kind what they of call it, the it. Galapagos of North America, because yes. it's so there's so much going on there. It's a really beautiful place, and it's good. Just don't go there. Right, I mean, right. you know, go there, but don't. Go look at pictures. So they've seen a lot of numbers in these species. Some are okay. California sea lions and elephant seals are increasing in abundance. And there's other ones like the harbor seals are going down in numbers, whereas Mm. there were more in the past. And they think it could be climate change. Temperatures are changing and El Nino events have had pretty big effects on their populations around the Channel Islands. So I'm going to talk more about that. But first, I'm going to talk about the indigenous people of the Channel Islands. The earliest humans in North America have been found in the Channel Islands. They have the earliest evidence for human seafaring in the Americas and the earliest evidence of humans in North America from bones. The Channel Islands are known to have been settled by maritime Paleo-Indian peoples at least 13,000 years ago. There's also, so they found this one guy they named the Arlington Springs Man, and you can look it up. There's a lot more information, but if I go down these rabbit holes, we'll never finish the episode. So, (laughs) But he was discovered in 1960 at Arlington Springs on Santa Rosa Island, and his remains were the ones that were dated back to 13,000 years. It's a long time ago. There was another one they called the Tukan Man, T-U-Q-A-N. He was discovered on San Miguel Island in 2005. His remains were exposed by beach erosion, but they were preserved by University of Oregon archaeologists, and his age was determined to be about 10,000 years. Archaeological sites on the island give interesting record of human, human interaction with the marine and terrestrial ecosystems like from way back to Pleistocene. I said it right. God bless America to now. The Anacapa Island Archaeological District which is a 700-acre historic district, was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1979. So oh. there's a lot of, like, historic stuff out there for yeah. that. Like, we know people have been there ever since. And it makes sense, right, that if people came over on boats from wherever, that they would hit the islands first. Yeah. But historically, the northern islands were occupied by the tribe that they called Chumash, and the southern islands were occupied by another kind of group of indigenous people. I'll say that because there's different smaller tribes. They were occupied by the group called Tongva. And the earliest known Chumash village was discovered in Santa Rosa. It was around the period of 7,500 BP. Soon after the population density on the islands began to rise, so there was a significant increase in fish and marine mammal exploitation. And around 2,500 BP or 500 BC, to put it in some perspective, there was a significant evolution in how they fished. And so they started fishing more by all their bits and pieces they left behind. They can tell that they found these circular shell fish hooks. They were starting to use those more and more. Mortars and pestles were manufactured on San Miguel Island for trade with Mm. the mainland and probably between the other islands. There was a new type of boat. It was like a frameless planked canoe that came around 1,500 
BP or 500 AD. Bows and arrows came in around that time. So they kind of see, you know, what people ate and how they got their food at different times. Between those two, I wanted to talk about an island that's located in the Southern Channel Islands, which would have belonged to the people known as Tongva. It's the island of San Nicolas, and the people that stayed there were called Nicolino people. Now, obviously, that's probably not what they called themselves, because that's a very Spanish word. And they also called the island San Nicolas Island. And then they're like, you guys are the Nicolino people. Well, anyway, this is all we got to work with. <laughs> Maybe by then they had like an archaeologist button mm-hmm. on their phone that was like, beep, beep, beep. And then archaeologists, and they're like, yes, how can we help? <laughs> they went over there and they, they, you know, have done all their studies. And they think that San Nicolas Island was populated at least 10,000 years ago. But they don't know if it's been continuously populated or not. But it's thought that the people there were very closely related with the Santa Catalina and San Clemente Islands. They were members of the Takik branch of the Uto Aztecan people related to the Tongva, which are now modern day tribe of indigenous people that live in Los Angeles. So that's as close as they can get it to that connection. The Chumash people called them, I'm going to do my best here, Nemenokoch. And called San Nicolas, the island itself, Galas At. And that could have been passed down. But as far as like what they called themselves, no one knows. There was an expedition in 1543 by Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. Cabrillo. He recorded that he spotted San Nicolas Island, but they didn't stop there. They were just like, yep, there's an island. And then in 1602, <laughs> uh, the Spanish explorer Sebastian Vizcano visited San Nicolas and then gave it its name. That's the guy. It's my favorite when explorers roll by a place and they're like we deem that and they don't even stop yeah well, they're just like that place over there i'm gonna name it after my cousin san nicholas i mean it, all of them are santa this or san that you know so it's all from the spanish during that time they don't know much about the people or their culture based on any kind of like oral history because by the time that they did see the people there it was in the 19th century and the population was majorly declined because of the spanish missionary recruitment and the spanish going there and like making everybody sick. I read a a lot of different articles. They're slightly different. Mm -hmm. So I tried to find like a running theme of something that was more current and probably more accurate. But what they say is that there was probably a few thousand people living on the island maybe 3,000. And then the span when that time in the 1600s when the Spanish came through and then it dropped their population over time, either by some being taken by missionaries recruited as free labor aka slave labor. So a lot of them were taken or they died from disease. And so by this time in the 1800s, there were about, they said about 300 people on the island. In those 200 years, that's how much it had gone down. And then some more bad luck. Around 1811, there was a group of Russian, American, and native Alouette hunters from Alaska. They were in search of sea otter pelts because they were super valuable back then, referred to as soft gold. I'm like, ew. They had been kind of coming and going, like they would come in and take some and then they would leave. And then they were like, some, they went back to wherever they were in Alaska and they're like, they have a lot there. You should Mm -hmm. go there. 
get some more because those people, there's only like a few of them and we don't care about them. So let's go. So in 1811, a group of 30, they say fierce hunters were hired by this Russian American company to invade the island and get Mm -hmm. whatever they wanted. They stayed for over a year unwelcome. They dramatically reduced the sea otter population because that's what they do. They also started attacking women and assaulting them, Nicolino women. And the men, the Nicolino men were trying to protect women they were killed so there was all these like sneak attacks and battles but the nicolino people the population went down even more they eventually left and they returned in 1815 with this russian hunter boris tasarov and this time they were actually stopped by the spanish authorities and they were arrested for illegal hunting the spanish are like this is our island we named it san nicholas and we don't want you coming here and doing this and the native people are like okay that's cool thank you but also Wait a second. This is actually ours. (laughs) By then, the damage was done. So by 1835, there were only about 18 or 20 people left. It reminds me of that show that just got put out on Netflix about uh, like the craziest roommates ever or something like scariest roommates. Oh, worst roommates ever? Yeah. And one of the episodes talks about this guy who like just knew a lot about rental law and would be a squatter. squatter. Yeah. He was a serial squatter. Yeah. The thing I didn't like is he was really creepy and he had animals and he stole that lady's cats and took them to a kill shelter. These are the ancestors of that guy. So yeah, after all that terrible stuff happened and there's only like 20 people left, there was uh, missionaries, of course, heard what was going on, probably, you know, because they had arrested that guy and they're like, look, this has happened. Mm-hmm. And so they sent this ship over called Pior Es Nada, translates to better than nothing. I'm using air quotes to rescue the remaining islanders I'm sorry. oh yeah the boat is called better than nothing better than nothing which i kind of like actually <laughs> so i was like was this a really shitty boat or what i don't know just like these people are at kind of their lowest and the boat is coming <laughs> and some you know maybe it's like a kid turns to his mom and he's like what is that and she's like better than nothing <laughs> better than nothing i guess <laughs> when they got there they said there was maybe like seven people like six women and this old man and the old man uh, apparently his name was Blackhawk, and he had suffered a head, head injury during the massacre especially hearing this the santa barbara mission on the mainland that's when they funded this ship 1835 captain charles hubbard sailed out there a lot of those people that came back they chose to live at this mission san gabriel archangel i guess the problem is is they had no immunity to all the diseases they encountered once they got there this is so sad so the poor older gentleman that was already not doing well he became blind after Mm -hmm. arriving and he fell off it says he died when he fell off a steam steep bank into the water and drowned i'm like did he fall Jeez, did someone push him did he fall or was he just like you know what this he's everything is just i need to die a warrior's death was he the only man left it seems like during the rescue air quotes Mm -hmm. a lot of times they brought people in to make them part of the mission or and or free labor when they were going out picking up the rest of the people once they were all on board reportedly one woman there's different stories here it varies so either she didn't get on the boat to begin with or she was on the boat and then jumped off the boat or asked them to let her get on shore this varies too it was either her baby or a younger brother that was still on the island and so before they could stop her or get her on the boat whatever it is they say she jumped off the boat and went back and they didn't wait for her and they said there's a couple of things they said maybe there was bad weather or they just were like whatever we need to want to be here we gotta go yeah Yeah. so now i'm going to talk about the story of juana maria or 
also known as the Lone Woman of San Nicolas Island. I found this under famous castaways, but I don't really consider her a castaway because that was her home. She went back home. She chose and wanted to stay on her island alone. The remaining people went to different missions on the mainland. They say all of them soon died. Later, we hear that maybe some of them were still around. It's just that they were given Christian names, so Mm. they might have lost track of them that way. So they died in a different way. Exactly, yes. A lot of them were like, I think she's dead. She probably drowned in the sea if she had jumped off the ship. And later, that Pior es nada, the better than nothing, sank off the coast of San Francisco. It was like a month after that rescue operation. She put a curse on that boat. She probably did, or they all did. You know, over the years, the legend of this woman staying out there was kind of still around. And occasionally, people like sailors passing by would say that they saw like an apparition of a woman, or they would see footprints on the beach. And so they would have all these records of somebody still there. And the missions kept it alive. So around 1850, there was an otter hunter that was visiting the island and they said they found a hut or her hut. That year, there was a priest from the Santa Barbara mission that he had sent a local otter hunter to look for her. He went, this hunter, he found nothing. A year later, there was this guy named George. I really don't know how to say this. Nidever, Nidever, N-I-D-E-V-E-R. Nidever. And they say that he was... A fur trader and a rancher. They say he was a colorful. I don't know what that means. He has a personality that you don't forget. I guess. Like he's very outgoing. But he was very interested in this mystery and what was going on. He also was really curious about all the reports that this abandoned island had this huge seal and sea otter population. So he was like, well, check it out, you know, because that's what he does. He went out there. And apparently it's like kind of a little bit of a rough go getting out there. I don't know if it always is like that or just certain times a year, probably. During his first two trips, he could not find her. On his third expedition to the island, he sent a search party, which included some mainland Native Americans. So they took a different route on the island and they had thought that she had deliberately eluded them. That's what they thought. And they found this basket filled with the cormorant feathers and tools. And so they wanted to prove she was there. So they took her stuff they they thought was her stuff and they kind of scattered it around and they waited a few hours and came back and everything was put back. So they're like, aha, she's here. She's just like hiding, right? Of course. Yeah. Wouldn't you be after all the shit you had seen with people coming there and, you know, killing everybody? And I mean, she was alive. She was like a little kid when those, you know, the hunters came down and like killed all of her people. And squatted on their land. Yeah. Yeah. Right after that, they found her and she had a pack, they say, of loyal dogs. They described her appearance. And this is written by that uh, Captain Nidever. This is an out something he wrote. He said, the old woman was of medium height, but rather thick. She must have been about 50 years old. I'm like, well that's rude (laughs) she's not old old and thick at 50 bro slap this guy this colorful guy (laughs) but she was still strong and active her face was pleasing as she could was continuously smiling her teeth were entire but worn to the gums her covering consisted of a single garment of shag skin the feathers out and pointing downwards in the shape of resembling a a loose gown it was sleeveless low in the neck and girded about the waist with a with a rope when she stood up it extended nearly to the ankles she had no coverings on her head her hair which was thickly matted and bleached a reddish brown hung down to her shoulders she's a wow woman right there i kind of like her so basically she had been living out there for 18 years they say there's also like conflicting reports about her initial reaction to seeing the people. She, they say she became friends quickly with the crew, but they couldn't get her real name. And they called her better than nothing. What? 
How shitty. They say to honor honor of the ship she had jumped off all those years before. You mean in honor of the ship that she cursed? Wow. <laughs> it's because she couldn't understand them. Yeah. She was probably cursing them in her language and they're Definitely. like, we don't know what you're saying. I feel like you said that she was smiling, but really she's like gritting her teeth and just saying things to herself. Like, you're like I'm going to eat you. guys are <laughs> the worst. <laughs> the Nidaver party that came out there, they stayed for about a month and they hunted and learned about the life she had had. So according to the Los Angeles Times, this is from that, the woman showed no signs of fear and offered the visitors food. By signs, she indicated that her baby had been killed years before by wild dogs, which infested the island, and that she had existed on seafood and seals killed with crude stone weapons. Mm. The woman showed them how she killed seals at night, made sinew fish lines from them, and hooks from abalone, which abounded along the shore. She also showed them well-hidden caves and canyons where she hid when marauding Russians and Aliwitz visited the Lonely Isle. So I guess they came back and she just hid, which is probably why she was hiding and checking out these people. Yeah. She lived in this hut partially made of whale bones, which just sounds so cool. I have some, there's some pictures they drew of what it looked like and what she looked like when they found her. She sustained herself on dry meat, so she would kill, you know, get the meat, dry it. And they said she marked her time on the island with a notched stick. They say, in return, the crew stuffed a seal for the woman, much to her delight. She hung it by a string to the roof of her hut and lying on her back under it would amuse herself for hours at a time by swinging it backwards and forwards. That's super weird, though, that they, like a seal, really? No. Okay. Maybe they, like, they taxidermied it? I guess. And she just thought it was cool that it looked alive, but it wasn't. She's like, I can hug on it. and I mean, 18 years? That's like Netflix right there. <laughs> she, that's her. She named the seal Netflix. <laughs> She's like, episode one. Yay. <laughs> seal swings forward. <laughs> so they say no one understood the language she spoke. She talked and sang incessantly, which I think is great. I love it. And she was a very good singer, they said. The crewmen were impressed with her resourcefulness. She was like, no. <laughs> they were like, wow, you're amazing. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> They say she kept every scrap of food she could, saving bones so that she could suck them to the marrow. I love it. She helped the visitors find fresh water and firewood. She showed the captain how to make a waterproof jug using heated stones and asphaltum. I don't know, asphaltum? Mm. Maybe it's just probably from the rocks. When it was time to leave, she boarded the ship willingly. Her clothes and one filled large basket was the only thing she took with her. Wait, so she left? She left. She went back with them. She was like, okay, 18 years. I'm good. She's like, it's kind of nice to see people again. Maybe she was just hoping to go curse them. I imagine all those years, she wondered how her relatives were and missed them and yeah. maybe thought they were still alive oh. and maybe thought she could finally see some family. People. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was like, I needed to stay with my son mm -hmm. and that no regrets. But after he passed, then she was completely alone. There was some other things I read that said that they saw a woman like waving, but it was like foggy and they couldn't tell. They're like, there's a ghost. Good God. And then they just sped up the engines <laughs> just with her kind of like hair and with the her, dress. Yeah. I can yeah. A siren. She is why people think there are sirens. I think so. Yes, that's the legend right there. She went back to this mission, Santa Barbara, um, and was placed in the care of the captain's wife. And they say that she was very curious about everything and that all these people came to see her and she would like sing and dance and do all her stuff. I guess people went to the captain and they offered to buy her for the circus. Oh, God. 
And he was like, no, we're good. Oh, thank God. I know. He had. He was, I guess, a decent guy. I guess she seemed really happy to be around people. She was fascinated by all these new sights and sounds. She saw a man on the horse for the first time, and she thought it was like one creature, they said. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and she was like freaked out when he got off the horse, and she had to like, go over and like touch all of the, touch them. But she apparently found out that all of her relatives were dead. And it says none of the other Native Americans or multilingual priests at the mission were able to understand her. We hear something different later. But it says her kindness was evident to everyone. Um, She was given a lot of gifts by all these visitors. And Mm -hmm. she would accept them, but then give them to the captain's kids. She sounds like a really, just like a really, really sweet lady. But here's the sad part. She was there for about seven weeks before she passed away. No. Apparently, you know, she loved all the food, green corn, vegetables, fresh fruits, but it caused her to get dysentery. They say she was so weak from dysentery that she actually fell another fall, like fell off the porch, injured her spine. And then after seven weeks, she died from the dysentery. I read different things. Some people were like, she was 50, she was this. They're saying she was 43. I don't know who came up with that number. Okay. But now it's getting even worse, right? <laughs> now I'm just really angry about it. <laughs> She's not old. She, she was, well, back then, maybe. This priest named Father Sanchez baptized and christened her with the Spanish name Juana Maria because mm-hmm. they didn't know her name. Um, she was buried in an unmarked grave at the captain's family plot at the Santa Barbara Mission Cemetery. Why didn't they mark her grave? I don't know. They say she may not have been the last of her people. It was likely that she was the last native speaker of that language. Okay. Because she was closely related with other tribes. Right. Probably their language. It's kind of like when you think about the islands in Micronesia that some of them are very similar, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they can understand each other. But the further away you get, it gets less and less. Yeah. Over decades, San Nicolas remained mostly like just like a rocky outpost. Nobody stayed there. There Mm -hmm. were some sheep herders that occasionally lived there, took their sheep and whatever. And by 1937, there was a small Navy compound on the island where radio operators would send weather reports Mm. to the mainland. Actually, the island is now a naval base. They have like munition sites and other installations. So it's closed to all the public and people just don't really talk about it anymore. But don't be too discouraged by that because I have a good story. I'm not sure, but some people listening to this may have figured it out because it sounds familiar because it's actually, there was a children's classic uh, book called Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. He wrote it in 1960 and it is kind of the story of Juana Maria. He tells the story of Karina, a young Nicolino girl left behind on a remote island off the coast of Southern California that she was only 12 years old in the beginning of the book. And turns out to be very good at hunting, building, tool making, and becomes a strong, capable woman surviving, you know, out there for all those years. A lot of people have read this in school. It's kind of old now, so I don't know if like more people recently, I never read it. When I saw the cover and saw the title, mm-hmm. it kind of looked familiar, but I don't think I had to read that one. So it's called The Island of the Blue Dolphins. Don't get it confused with Blue Lagoon. I almost mentioned Blue Lagoon. <laughs> In 1939, there was some archaeologists that discovered her whalebone hut on the northernmost end of San Nicolas, which is the highest point of the island, which is so smart, right? It's probably windy and she can see everything from up there. The location of the hut is exactly where the Captain Nidiver had said it would be. And then this is more recent and this is where we kind of get some more information. So in 2012, archaeologist um, Stephen Schwartz 
He's actually, I think he's a Navy um, archaeologist. He found a site that may have been Juana Maria's cave. In 2009, the University of Oregon archaeologist John Erlinson found two Nicolino-style redwood boxes that were eroding from um, a sea cliff. And they were covered by a whale rib and associated with several asphaltum-coated woven water bottles. And they were about to get destroyed from these winter storms. So this might have been where Juana Maria was believed to have spent much of her time. They salvaged these boxes and they contained more than 200 artifacts. And I have pictures of that too, including bird bone pendants, abalone shell dishes and fish hooks soapstone ornaments, sandstone abraders, and a harpoon tip, and several native Alaskan toggling harpoon tips. Oh, from when those people came down. Stephen Schwartz was working with students from California State University, Los Angeles. They found and uncovered buried remnants of this long lost cave where they think she may have lived. They started to kind of dig into it, but they had to stop at the request of the Pachanga Band of Luceno Indians. They claimed the cultural affiliation and they were like, no, you need to stop because they were getting really worried about how human remains had been handled and that's their call. They haven't found out any more about it. So right now it's just there. The same guy was also looking at trying to pull together as much information as he could working with the park service. And they found as much as they could from that Pioras Nada, the ship that transported, <laughs> transported them from San Nicolas Island to a port near L.A., They say that the records place at least four of the people in Los Angeles after 1935. And one of them was, this is what I was telling, was baptized Thomas at the age of five. Um, And he would have still been living and was still living when she came back to Santa Barbara. And so they say it may have been unlikely he knew that she came, but that's when things started to change because they're like, no, not everybody was dead. And maybe there were some people that would have understood her. So all these people from the Park Service and these other experts got together to try to figure out what really happened. I mean, archaeologists, right? He's like, it's an it's like an explosion that keeps getting bigger and bigger because there's so much information like coming out. Um, and they say that to start with, they said she wasn't able to communicate when she arrived, but he suggests that there were three to four Native Americans that knew the language well enough to converse with her. And this is a quote, the story she communicated was that she stayed behind to be with her son and they lived together for a number of years. One day the boy was in a fishing boat. There's some disruption. The boat flips over and the boy disappears. Oh no. Possibly victim of a shark attack, which sounds very likely. To Schwartz, it makes sense because it kind of explains why she might have been willing to leave at the time that the other captain came later um, because she was really alone. I like that story better than thinking that her son was killed by dogs. Well, maybe she was like, and then "Ah, ah, ah, ah." they're like, that was a shark. Yeah. And they were like, like, dogs. dogs. (laughs) Exactly. It's not funny, but it's, but those people weren't very, I mean, the people that originally rescued her were kind of dickheads. There's this messed up looking fat lady. Super old. (laughs) She was like 40. She's so old. I'm just going to go put some moisturizer on my face right now. Anyway, so they're also trying to kind of, you know, they're looking at the novel that Odell wrote and they say that from the research he had at the time, this is what he knew, but now kind of like like a million things they're never going to know, but a really interesting lady. And there's all, there's a plaque dedicated to her at that Santa Barbara mission. There's also a statue of her holding a baby. There's a lot of cool stuff and all those pictures are, they'll be part of this. I like the idea that someone wrote a book 
kind of loosely based on her. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. I kind of want to know how old she was. How Did you say how old she was when she jumped off the ship? They weren't sure. Well, they weren't sure. But here, if she was 43, they say she had been out there for 18 years. So she was in like her 20s. Okay, good. Yeah, it was just like the book you were saying she was 12. And I was like, oh, God, she had a baby already. Like, I, I mean, I know the book is loose. Yeah. And there's all based. kinds of well, and it might have started the book may have started when those people came over and started attacking. Right. Like that she was still a kid that time. Right, right, right. So she would have been maybe like 25 at the time. But I was also like, well, who was the father? Because everybody had died. So I'm thinking the old man. No lie, when you said there was like how many eight women or something, and like, if they're calling one, him an old man, he was probably like thirty-five. He's really just forty. But I also think her, if her son was two, and that had been going on like all these battles. Maybe mm-hmm. she, her husband was killed. Died, yeah, yeah, or the father was killed. I'm just saying, Black Hawk was, was getting it done. He was like, "Look, we have to." There's was, only twenty. It's like me and all those ladies. He was that guy. Yeah, like end of the world. I'm o- the only guy here. Yeah. Help me help you. Maybe that's why he looks so old. He's just real tired. <laughs> God, this is awful. I don't know if this is offensive or not. I'm probably not good. So cool, cool. I'm going to move on to... Um, my last bit here, which is when I told you there was like a good story about the wildlife there. There is a successful restoration story for San Nicolas. Oh. The island, especially since the Navy's been there for so long, it's relatively untouched. Um, lots of different species, like I mentioned earlier. Especially they have the island fox. It's a small fox. It's endemic to six of the islands, which I think I mentioned earlier, six mm-hmm. subspe- subspecies. Um, and each are unique to the island that they're on which is really interesting for, especially for island biologists or evolutionary, yeah. you know, like people who it's are cool. looking. It's really cool. They say they're very docile and they show little fear of humans and that they're easily tamed, which I'm like, are those her dogs? Because it said that island foxes played an important role in the spiritual lives of native Channel Islanders, and they were likely semi-domesticated pets. It sounds more to me that, because I was wondering about the dogs. Oh, did they come with those hunters? That would be amazing if she was just like her and a bunch of foxes. Sweet foxes. Makes you love her even more, right? Yes. In her feathered gown. The one that's endemic to San Nicolas is the, (laughs) I'm going to try and say it. Don't stop me because it's so good. Do it. Erosion literalis dickii. That's Latin, Megan. Why are you laughing? I love Latin. So good. (laughs) Here's an issue for the little cute little foxes. There was golden eagles came in. They were discovered when some foxes that were radio collared, like they were monitoring them because they were showing high mortality rates and the golden eagle was coming over and just like eating them. They're like the radio collars just end up in these eagle nests. They're (laughs) like, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what happened. Biologists had proposed that the eagles were attracted to the islands around the 1960s Mm -hmm. after the decline of the bald eagle. So, you know, something goes out, something comes in. Filled right in. All right. So the golden eagles um, had replaced the bald eagle. Essentially, the issue is, is that they eat different things like Mm -hmm. bald eagles don't eat foxes the island foxes and the bald eagles like lived in this balance harmonious balance yeah they got along really well they had brunch together and bald eagles had been there forever the oldest fossils found in southern california are thirty-five thousand years old and that's from the labray tar pits bald eagles declined between 1945 and 1960 right we said because of ddt which had been introduced in the surrounding areas and the eagles were like (laughs) 
<laughs> and then like X's over their eyes. And then sitting on their eggs and the eggs are just breaking. So sad. Historically, the bald eagles would have kept golden eagles from coming over. Mm-hmm. They kept them from colonizing the islands and also essentially protected the fox. Even though they're both called eagles. This is, I mean, bird people know this, but for all of us non-bird people, yeah. they come from two distinct evolutionary branches oh. of predatory birds that separated and became competitors more than 12 million years ago. 12 million what? years ago, they're like giant. <laughs> <laughs> and just by comparison, humans and chimpanzees diverged from common ancestors just 7 million years ago. So oh. put it in some perspective by millions of years, which is very hard for our brains. They start reintroducing the bald eagles back. The foxes are like, yay. They're down there like having parades. <laughs> so by 2019 was the best year for bald eagle reproduction since recovery efforts had began some 35 years earlier. And that spring they had 24 bald eagle chicks that had successfully fledged from the nest. Even though the bald eagles were back, they still had the fox were still, you know, the numbers were getting really low because of diseases and parasites, which makes me think there were dogs there because they were getting like distemper and things like that. Oh, okay. Also, somebody had introduced some feral cats. Listen, okay, she's living on an island by herself. I'm just saying. I'm thinking the Alaskans brought over some cats and left them. Maybe. She was cool with it. She She was was like, like, this is great. These are way more chill. I can take a nap with them. They probably all napped like the foxes. All the time. Yeah. But the problem is, is that they were, the foxes and the cats were competing for the same food. Oh, Oh, yeah. Awkward. Yes. It got awkward real quick. So in 2010, the Navy Fish and Wildlife Service, Island Conservation, Institute for Wildlife Studies, Humane Society of the United States, and the Montrose Settlement Restoration Program, which I'd never heard of before this. Cool. They're part of NOAA. That's cool. Yeah. They completed the removal and relocation of feral cats. They just trapped them and took them out. 100% completed it? Yes, completed it. That's impressive. I'm assuming also spayed and neutered. Probably. The foxes have different levels of, you know, status, endangered status. But the ones on San Nicolas, I don't think they were critically endangered, but some of the other subspecies were. And I don't know if they're looking at it as one species, but between those and the Brant's comorants, they're no longer at risk for competition from direct predation. They've been monitoring the island since 2010, since they have a little bit of a Navy presence there. There have been no feral cats detected since 2010. Also, we're going to put the link up because there's a bald eagle cam and I went to it and I saw a bald eagle just like hanging out. I don't think it's on that particular island, but it's in the Channel Islands for organizations to support. I thought... We should try to support some Native American tribes connected to those islands. I had a really hard time trying to find something because uh, there was some links to some, but it looks like it maybe the website has gone away. The Tongva people that were connected to that island had since had their name changed by the Spanish to the Gabrielino Band of Mission Indians. But they're actually the Tongva people. Yeah. I'm going to put their website up. There isn't a place to donate, but they do have a site and they call it the San Gabriel Band of Mission Indians, Mm -hmm. probably based on historically what they were called. What people might recognize them as. Yes. This Gabrielino or Tongva, they say it was finally recognized by the state of California in 1994. Um, They say they're still an integral part of the Southern California community. Their presence is well documented, obviously. They have cultural and historic sites throughout the county, the LA County, and their office still remains at the San Gabriel Mission. And they said, why do we keep using Gabrielino 
Taino, and it's because it was the original name given to them by the Spaniards that colonized our land, it is important to recognize that this is what our ancestors identified as for more than a century. Mm -hmm. And to erase the name Gabrielino is to erase the identity of our ancestors that helped us find our way back to our culture and eventually back to the name Tongva. We have ancestors buried in the San Gabriel mission who only knew themselves as Gabrielino who carried on our language and traditions and proudly called themselves Gabrielino. They say we're happy to have found our original name in our language. We could not go in good conscience and erase that name. Yeah. So you can go to their site. It's a lot of information, but I couldn't find anywhere to donate. One place that you could donate is the other islands that um, on the north were part of the Chumash Indians or Native Americans. They still have Indian and that's why. Right, so, yeah. But there is a Chumash Indian Museum and I'm going to put the link and you can donate to that and it's a historic site and living history center it's dedicated to restoring and preserving an awareness of the chumash people and the historical cultural material and present day influence and they do educational programs and try to keep the traditions alive and so i think that's a a good one you could donate to but i think just by going and reading about it like Mm -hmm. knowledge is power and you can learn for sure you know like learn and keep the memory alive the last one and i thought i would pull it back to supporting the wildlife would be the channel island park foundation they're an authorized nonprofit partner to the channel islands national park okay so you know how most national parks they can't raise their own money exactly they have a nonprofit partner always yes Mm -hmm. So you can also go and support directly the work that's being done by the Channel Islands National Park. That's so, cool. So all yeah. the links will be there in the cool photos. I got a photo of the fox and they're super cute. Anyway, Megan, that is my story. That was a great story. It's, I enjoyed that. I kind of went down. I mean, I was not planning to do that. I don't know mm-hmm. how. I just read something and I was like, Whoa? yeah. So uh, uh, Megan. Oh, man. I feel like there's so many things here. She was amazing. I wish that there were some stories about her just being a siren. Just like luring pe- <laughs> and just, you know, like she, instead of whalebone, she made her house out of like sailor bones. <laughs> yeah, just to get back at them. Just to be like, you guys are the worst. Yes. I wish that there were a time machine, always. always. And you could go back in time and provide them with buckets of Purell and <laughs> some masks. And some masks, you know, for like when. Some vaccinations. The, for, yeah, for when the colonizers show up so that those tribes can stay strong. Because I feel like it was, it was the d- disease that came in first. It weakened them enough to to be taken over and they would need help because they were sick they were like oh man we're really sick People everybody's getting sick because this like it makes me feel like all the colonizers were just so gross it's getting on a boat from the other side of the world Ugh. you know they have to wear their uniforms all day just all the so time stinky and and they you know they take it off they just wear their under things same under things Ugh. colonizers <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Even better than a bucket of sanitizer and a bunch of masks. Yeah. And 95s. Maybe if she had a kitsune. You remember kitsune from no. our... What? When we did the spooky stories for Halloween, we talked about kitsune. They're like a demon spirit. Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot the name of it. A fox, usually female. Oh. Fox demon spirit. Yeah, kitsune. A kitsune or a siren. Or a kitsune and a siren. I think maybe a herd of foxes would be good. Oh, what do you call a group of foxes? We looked it up, what a group of foxes is, uh, a skulk. So if she was just walking around with her skulk 
of foxes. Uh, that's the best word ever. Oh my god. I mean, there's a lot of options here. I like the skulk of foxes. That's good. They help her hunt. They keep her company. Mm-hmm. They only liked her. She was wearing the dress. So a skulk of foxes in a cormoran dress. So you're looking like a siren with a bunch of foxes around you. You're just freaking a diva of that island. Living your best life. Living your best life. And she, she, they found her because she wanted to be found. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. She was like, yeah. fine. Okay. Maybe when they put all of her stuff all over the place and she cleaned it up, she was like, shit. <laughs> you know what i think is because they had they said that they had native americans go with them to help find her and i think she saw them and she's like those are my people they cleaned up my thing yeah, i can trust them i can trust it i'll come out but she probably was a little bit irritated that they dumped all her stuff out she's everywhere. like why are you touching my stuff like, like that's rude that's not cool dude yeah but anyway, I, I think that's it. Skulk of foxes and a cormorant feather dress. Because she's a diva. Basically, that's what divas are, right? Sirens, they sing a lot. Yes. Anyway, thanks, Megan. Okay. That was great. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I did very much. We have a Patreon to shout out. Yeah, we do. I was on the phone with my brother this weekend. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you guys really have a hard time saying patron instead of Patreon. And I was like, yes, because the website is called Patreon in my brain. I think that people are Patreons. So mm-hmm. I call them that all the time. And he was kind of making fun of us. We kind of go back and forth. Yeah, we we, wa- we waffle a little bit. But anyway, either way, we have a we new have patron. A new patron. <laughs> or a Patreon. You know what? I like it. Whatever. You can judge us. It's like that It's like that mom from... Us anyway. My son and I watched that show, The Circle. And there's this mom in there. And she can't say emoji. She just calls them emojos. <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely. We're 100% that. So our new Patreon. Thank you so much. Our new Patreon or our new patron? What does it matter? Our new patron is yeah. Tanner. Welcome, Tanner, to our Nature Nerd family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're so happy. And if you would like to become a Patreon, just go to our website, click the link, or you can go to our link tree and Instagram. And it's as easy as that. Just go to Patreon and sign up. It takes seconds. It's amazing. You'll become a certified and nature nerd. Another way you can support us is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker. Be sure to give us your address on the contact form on our website or email us at you're gonna die out there at gmail.com. Another way you can support is is go to our website and check out our sponsors. See if there's anything you'd like to order. There's links, you can get discounts. They're all zero waste or eco-friendly businesses that support us and we love them. And we're not gonna read the ads, but you can go check it out. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher, click that follow button. That'll help us out as well. You can also send us ideas for topics that you would like to hear. Crazy stuff you found online. You can send that to our email or DM us on Instagram. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. It's just no banter. It's a no banter day. No waffling. No waffling. Yep. Murder at bedtime with Lyndon. Yeah, med- yeah. murder at bedtime with Lyndon. So Lyndon we still taught us that. about waffling. We waffle. A lot. A lot. But today, we well, we're doing it just because we said we weren't Jesus going to do Christ. it. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Get it together. Okay. Um, I can never say this word. Archipelago? Thank you. Archipelago. I love how I like knew that you were trying to say archipelago. I practiced too and I said it Archipelagio. right. Archipelagio. I just could not say it.
Archipelagio. (laughs) (laughs) Something in my brain just hates that. So good. They look majestic, but they're like, hey, get out of my way. They're like the Milli Vanilli of (laughs) bird species. (laughs) Oh, it's like when I think of Milli Vanilli, you laugh, but then you're like, oh, that's so tragic. It's so wrong. It's a big problem in the music industry. We should start a whole nother podcast. We should just just like music industry. Yeah. Yeah. Bullshit. Well, I watched Sing 2 last night with my kids. I was singing all the songs and they're like, how do you know that song? Like Elton John, Yellow Brick Road. And I was like, listen. And then at the end, of course, they start singing Where the Streets, I think it's Where the Streets Have No Names. Anyway, you two. And then (laughs) I was like, wow, the guy singing the lion sounds exactly like you, like Bono. Yeah. And then I Google it and it's... Bono? It's Bono. I say I've seen it, but I purchased it for my son. He turned it on and I immediately took a nap. I didn't mean to. I was like, wow, this is a neat. <laughs> it's like asleep because I put the heating pad on and I was all just like, this is so comfortable. And all the animals pile on you. God. Just like a big lava lump. <laughs> they do. They follow me around the house. It's crazy. <laughs> the meth dolphins are just like, they're, they're real hardy, Jen. <laughs> they're real, those, real hardy. Those stonewash they can wearing. <laughs> they can somehow make it through a lot. Obviously, the Pacific Grey Whales are like, Super chill. It's like going to senior frogs. <laughs> They're going to get it done. Uh, well, I mean, it is their mating group. Right? When they go to karaoke, they only sing that one Tom Petty song that everybody knows. <laughs> Free Fallen. <laughs> what about oh, some Jimmy Buffett? Jimmy Buffett? I was just about to say that. <laughs> They're singing some Jimmy Buffett. Margaritaville. <laughs> All right. Okay, moving on. Sorry, and that one lady that was like, she's like, oh, I knew self-defense. And she just went all like taekwondo. She was like, and he was like, okay, I'm going to (laughs) leave. Okay, bye. She's like, yeah, he left. I like the lady who was just like the last roommate who was like a little bit out of it. Like she was real weird. A little bit valley girl. She was. She was was different. She was different. But I like that she's like, yeah, I just had like a party and I had all my friends over and they just like, we turned the music up like really loud and he came out. We're like, you want a drink? (laughs) And they were like blowing smoke under his door. I was like, wow, that's ballsy. They were just trying to get rid of him, but then he went all cray. He went all cray. You know what it makes me think of? (laughs) This is an outtake. (laughs) Oh, what's the vampire show that you got me hooked on when we were, uh, uh, what we do in the- What we do in the shadows. What we do in the shadows. Do you remember the bird lady that Colin falls in love with? Yes. (laughs) And she just like eats people whole. Yes. No lie. I was going to be like, is this story about a siren? (laughs) Because you're talking about... Oh, yeah, about, she was a siren. That's right. It's like a weird kind of siren because she was half bird, half whatever. Yes. That's amazing. I am not going to lie. I was like, that's probably rude because she was a Native American and she was like living yeah. out there.